Morning, everyone. Nice to see you. If we haven't met before, yeah, my name is Matthew. And um, if you're visiting, very warm welcome to you. Hope you enjoy being with us. And hi to everyone at home as well. Now then, it's a late uh, return to school for um, all the kids this year, isn't it? Not back until tomorrow, which is, I think that's nice sometimes to have a bit of a week after Christmas. I remember when I was around 12 years old, we had one of these late holidays into January. And in our first week of January as a family, we went to Belgium to visit this couple called Jan and Marlene. And uh, they had planted a church uh, out where they lived in Belgium. And the cornerstone here in our church and my parents, they would go out to support them and encourage them and help them as they had kind of planted this church and was getting it going. And anyway, we were there one time in January. And uh, I thought whilst we were there, you know, Christmas had finished. It was behind us, decorations kind of gone away and that kind of thing. That seemed like it was all in the past. But whilst we were there, something that took me by surprise was that there were still some celebrations to go there because they celebrated the festival of the three kings, or sometimes called Epiphany as well, around the 5th, the 6th of January or the Sunday after. And uh, this is where people celebrate, or one of the things they celebrate, the visit of the Magi or the wise men. Obviously, when you have a school nativity, isn't it? They like to pack it all into one play, and so everyone shows up on one night. But in reality, it was likely that the wise men visited maybe a year later, even two years later. And uh, so anyway, the one thing I remember in particular about this little celebration while we were there is something called the king's cake. And what would they would make this cake... And they would hide, I don't know if you've heard of this before, this was brand new to me. They would hide a bean in the cake and then, have you heard of this before? And then, you know, obviously they slice it up and sometimes as well, I think, I'm not sure if we did this, but they would, um, like someone would close their eyes and give out the slices and then whoever had the bean in their slice of cake would be like king for the day or king for the afternoon and might get some special prizes and things. So, For me and my two sisters, we never heard of this before, so this is quite exciting. And uh, the days leading up, they've been talking about the king's cake and, you know, putting the bean into the cake, and Marlene had baked one at home, and I think she was quite enjoying us having her round, excited about it. Her children were were grown up and had left home, and so it was all a little bit, you know, I remember on the day, it was a little bit of build-up, and then, you know, there was lunch, and then finally, the king's cake was served, and, you know, it was sliced up, couldn't see any on the outside, where's the bean? And I remember my mum, my sisters, and Marlene, we were all sat around one end of the table, tucking into our cake. And, um, and as we were you know, who's going to get the bean? Who's going to get the bean? And uh, there was no bean. There was no, we couldn't find the bean. And then it's like almost all together, we looked down to the end of the table, and uh, there was Jan and my dad kind of engrossed in deep conversation about, you know, church and vision and leadership and other things. And, uh, and just two empty plates uh, with crumbs. And obviously, one of them had had the bean and eaten the bean and not noticed. And, uh, and so my dad was, by default, crowned uh, the king of the day um, and was officially the king of the festival. Although we'll never know whether he truly was the king by right. But that's how we remember the, 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 the bean that went missing uh, that day. Anyway, today I thought we could have a look at this little event together, the visit of the wise men, um, and pull out a couple of things for us for the new year. Does that sound okay? 
here we go. We pick up the story uh, after Jesus had been born. God's promise that his Savior was coming into the world. God himself had taken place. And probably a year or two later, after Joseph, Mary, and Jesus had settled into Bethlehem, uh, we read this in Matthew chapter 2. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. So these are our main characters here. You've got Jesus, obviously. We've got King Herod, who we'll come back to in a minute. And then the Magi, also known as royal astrologers, or as we often like to call them, the wise men, or even the three kings. And of course, it doesn't actually say how many there were. Uh, there were three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So that's often a nice round number for Christmas cards and for nativity plays. But in all... Uh, likelihood there was probably a whole uh, stack of them there. Because in real life, magi like this, or royal astrologers, they would have been members of like a royal court. So if you remember when we did our Esther series, and we looked at you know Queen Esther and King Xerxes, and he had uh, a whole group of advisors, and this was, would be this would be that group uh, here. They might act as advisors to the king, or they might act as ambassadors and travel to other nations to do you know political things. And so usually, if they traveled, there'd be like a whole entourage. There would be you know supplies, servants, gifts, food, and there'd be a whole stack of people. So I like to imagine it. Think of more uh, the arrival of Prince Ali into Acrobat than just like three blokes turning up on camels uh, quietly in the middle of the night. So it's more that kind of scene. So when these magi turn up in Jerusalem, this really gets people's attention. There's a bit of a you know, there's a whole entourage of important dignitaries turning up, and it would have caused a particular stir because these magi came from the east, from the area of Persia and Babylon, and at the time, this was a region which was independent of the Roman Empire and was like a rival empire. And so you've got, uh, you know, whereas Jerusalem and King Herod were under Roman rule, suddenly you've got these ambassadors from a rival nation turning up, unannounced, a whole crowd of them, this could be a little bit unsettling for the onlookers. What's going on here? Why are these people turning up? Okay, also, if you imagine, if you were imagine you were a Jew in the first century, you're a new follower of Jesus, you've just heard about him, you've just learned about him, and you're hearing for the first time about, you know, wise men or advisors, magi, astrologers from the East coming... When was the last time that you encountered the wise men of Babylon and Persia? It's in the stories of Esther, and you know, which we saw, and how they sometimes they gave questionable advice, uh, to say the least, and also in the stories of Daniel. And if you remember, under King Darius, it was the wise men who plotted to have Daniel killed and tricked the king into, you know, throwing him into the lion's den. So when you hear wise men from the east, you're thinking that these might be the villains of the story. That's where your mind is going, because that's the history that you associate them with. Does that make sense? But then we read something surprising. So it says this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So that would take you by surprise. You wouldn't be expecting that. There's a little twist in the story straight off. Now, has anyone been watching Traitors over Christmas? Hands up if you've 
or had a watch of this, or you've heard about it. Oh, not okay, a handful, a small handful. So, it's, it's, so uh, basically, this um, is a game that we played with the, in the youth for years, even when I was a youth, traitors or mafia, and now they've turned it into a TV show, but in this version, they've locked like a dozen people into a castle in Scotland, and they're playing for 120,000 pounds, so it's, you know, guess a little, it's actually quite a good watch, we, we came across it accidentally, I think we were, um, you know, it was the end of one of the World Cup games, and then we were wrapping our treat boxes, and the TV was just left on, and it was like playing in the background, and then suddenly, you know how when something's on, then you get more and more kind of engrossed in it. So much so, when the final was on, I won't give any spoilers, but Precious, I'll tell you this, she started on the sofa, and she ended up on, on her knees in front of the TV. <laughs> so, so it's sexual. Anyway, there's one particular guy, and if anyone who's watched it, you will know, I won't give any clues away, there's one particular guy that if you were casting someone to play King Herod, this guy could definitely play that role because King Herod was a paranoid and ruthless man. He'd politically worked his way up to be uh, the king of the Jews under the Romans. He had some Jewish heritage, but he didn't have any like royal lineage or claim to the throne by birth. He wasn't very popular with the ordinary people, and his legitimacy as king was very, very shaky. And so he obsessively got rid of and killed any threats that he perceived in his paranoia to be a threat to him, including members of his own family. So now, you've got King Herod. Suddenly, these ambassadors turn up from a rival nation on his doorstep asking, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews, to the man who is king of the Jews, not by birth. This, like, if you could, you know, if there's possibly one thing you would not want to mention to King Herod, it would be this. I can imagine Herod's advisors turning white when they hear this question and thinking, these, these wise men aren't going to last here very long. And it says this, King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this as was everyone in Jerusalem, probably thinking maybe some political situation is going to kick off. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. So, trouble is afoot. So here we see how Herod consults with the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law about, you know, where is this person going to be born? These teachers and priests, these were people who knew God's promises. They were expecting the Messiah. As they looked through the scriptures and the prophecies, they were expecting him to come soon. They knew it was, they were expecting it to come soon, maybe even in their lifetime. And they hear this news from the wise men. They hear about their journey. They hear about what they've seen. They hear about why they have come. And they tell them that the answer is in Bethlehem. People say he'll be born in Bethlehem. Now, that was just six miles down the road from where they were, a two-hour walk away. 
So what would you expect them to do with that news? These experts in, in the, you know, the religious texts and expecting the Messiah to come. And then suddenly they hear that God's promise is being fulfilled in their time, in their day. And just a two-hour uh, two walk. That's Google time as well. So you could probably do that a little bit quicker. A two-hour walk down the road. Right on their doorstep. What do you think they would do with that news? Do you remember a few years ago when Radio One's big weekend was announced that it was coming to Swansea and Ed Sheeran and Taylor Swift and all these other big artists and whatever, they were coming to Swansea. They're going to be right at our doorstep. And when the tickets were released, it was like, I remember logging on early and it's like you're in a queue of, you know, 10,000 people and you're waiting for the queue to go down. Everyone's a little rushed to get tickets. I don't know if some people I know here managed to get along. Maybe, maybe you weren't interested in that, but maybe there's been other events and it's come to a town near you or a city near you or like when the Olympics came to London and there's a rush to get tickets because, wow, this might be what, you know, it's on our doorstep once in a lifetime. Could you imagine these guys, not just like the Olympics or a concert, but the Messiah, the Savior of the world, what they've spent their whole lives studying and waiting for is about to arrive two hours down the road and what do they do? Nothing. Nothing. They stay put. They stay put where they are and do nothing. And instead, it's the wise men from the east, who this is brand new to, who carry on. And it says this, after this interview, the wise men went on their way. And the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went, it went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so, the wise men and all their entourage descend on this small town of Bethlehem. They expected to find the answer in Herod's palace in the capital, Jerusalem, but instead they're directed to a, just a home, a poor home to a poor family in a small rural village. It's not what they were expecting when they set off. Imagine the scene in this quiet street in Bethlehem of all these ambassadors from a rival empire landing, you know, on that street. It would have been chaos. I'm sure there was probably someone there who didn't like people parking outside their house who was kicking off. But everyone else, I'm sure, was really excited and coming in to see what was going on. And they enter the house. They bow down in worship. They give royal gifts. Imagine the scene. And this response of the wise men is such a surprise too that these powerful people from a rival nation, a history of animosity, you thought they would be the enemies, but they are the ones who find Jesus. And it's them who worship him. It's them who honor him. And it's them who are filled with joy. And this communicates right at the start of Jesus' life that Jesus' welcome is for everyone. His welcome is for everyone, and his welcome defies expectations. And it shows for us, as followers of Jesus, never, ever, in our own thinking, to write anyone off that, or oh, they wouldn't be interested in finding out who Jesus is. Or I won't share with them, or I'll hold back because, you know, they won't be interested or something, because 
Jesus' welcome is for everyone, and it defies expectations. His welcome is for all. Last week, I bumped into an old friend from my, who was on my school bus, literally like on Monday. I uh, bumped into him in, in a shop, and we had a good chat, and he was asking how, you know, how the church is and how things are going, because when we were teenagers, I invited him to our Christmas service, and he came with me a few times. And I remember one time, he asked me on the school bus, how do I know that Jesus is real? And how do I know that the Bible um, isn't just like made up, this was his words, like someone who wrote Harry Potter? <laughs> and obviously the Bible is a, you know, a whole collection of books, isn't it? But he was talking specifically about Jesus' life. How do we know it's not just like someone who wrote Harry Potter, someone wrote you know, Jesus' story? And you know, when I was about maybe 14 or 15, I thought, that's a, it was a really good question. And I had to think about it a little bit. And around that time, I'm not sure if it was because of his question or I'd been reading it anyway, I'd read this really great book by a guy called Lee Strobel, and I know I've mentioned it before, but this guy, Lee Strobel, he was the lead investigator for the Chicago Tribune, and uh, he was a journalist, and he would investigate their criminal, criminal cases in Chicago, and he was the lead investigator for this newspaper. And uh, one day, his wife got invited to a church, and she ended up becoming a Christian and a follower of Jesus. But Lee Strobel himself, he was an atheist. And he said how he would debate with his wife. He thought it was nonsense. And he was trying to convince her out of it and convince her otherwise. And uh, after a number of weeks and months of this, he had the idea. And he pitched it to his newspaper. And he said, how about I do an investigation into Christianity and into Jesus, just like I do with the criminal cases. And... Uh, and I, you know, look into Christianity like that. And his motive and his idea was he wanted to, you know, on work time, do a thorough investigation. He could travel and interview all different people and do the research and disprove that Christianity was untrue and he could prove it to his wife. And so we, the newspaper said, yeah, great idea. They commissioned him to do it. He did this whole investigation. And in doing so, he discovered that the evidence actually pointed the other way. And after his investigation, he actually became a follower of Jesus himself, after looking into all the research and the history and things himself, he discovered that Jesus was a real man who lived 2,000 years ago, who was killed on a cross, but not only that, came back to life, defeating death, that God himself would come into the world so we could know relationship with God, that we could experience him in our lives in a real way. Now, have forgiveness, his peace, his love, and the promise of eternal life. And so then he turned his investigation into a book called The Case for Christ, which explores all these questions. It's really good. And then recently, he's released one as well called The Case for Heaven, which um, is very similar to the Imagine Heaven series, which you can find on our website, um, which John Burke put together. And John Burke has a similar story as well. He, was a, he says that he was an atheist or a skeptic, maybe an agnostic, I'm not sure. Uh, he was an engineer, and uh, one day... His father was in the hospital and uh, with late stages of cancer, and someone had given his dad a book about someone who'd had a near-death experience. John Burke read it for himself, read this book, thought, wow, this is amazing, went on to investigate these uh, near-death experiences, which have been recorded in medical journals and stuff. Even here in Swansea, a doctor did a, a really famous kind of study on it in Morrison and Singleton Hospital. 
And uh, that led him on a journey of discovery and a journey of faith where he is now a Christian as well and has produced this amazing series. And so if you're here and you're asking questions and you're investigating and you're searching, you're watching at home and, you know, you're not sure and you're asking questions like Lee and John were, then these are two great places to start to discover a little bit more and to find out a little bit more. I got some little versions of John's book here, which you can come and collect at the end if you'd like one. But these are really two good places to start. And I'd encourage you to continue in your investigation and ask the questions for yourself. And if you've never read these books, these are great for anyone to read, and they're really helpful. And if someone ever turns to you on the school bus and says, how do you know Jesus is real? These will help you uh, answer the question. And we had some good conversations. So anyway, just like these two men, the wise men, they sought after Jesus They traveled, they journeyed, and they found. And when we look back on Christmas and we think about the amazing things that Jesus has done for us, how God himself came into the world to rescue us and sought after us, just like uh, Christie's kid spot this morning, where we read in 1 John where it says, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. When we think of all that God has done for us, but what I love about this occasion is we see how the wise men in turn pursued after Jesus. And we don't know how much they knew or what they were expecting. Were they familiar with the Old Testament prophecies and they knew that God was sending a Messiah and a Savior? Did they understand what that meant? Or did they just have some idea? We're not sure. But they did know that this person was important and there was something in this. And on that basis, they traveled. You know, and this wasn't easy. They traveled miles and a distance. They searched. They brought gifts. They were dedicated. And when they arrived, on the surface... They just found a poor family, no palace, no king. There would be no earthly reward or political favor granted back to them. There was no material benefit on the surface to come back to them. But it didn't matter because they had come for Jesus. They came to worship him for who he is, because he is worthy. And in that place, they were filled with joy. And it reminds me of the promise uh, in the Bible, which Sarah spoke on last week when she talked about the picture that she had for the new year from Isaiah 55, where it says this, you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you and the trees of the field will clap their hands. You will go out in joy. You will be led forth in peace. Another translation just says, you will live in joy and peace. And in Jesus and our relationship with him and the reality of that in our lives, his presence living within us, the experience of his forgiveness, total forgiveness for the things that we've done wrong, that our lives have purpose and meaning and value, even in challenging seasons or even when things haven't gone as we expected, that God still has a purpose for us and still can bring good things out of our lives to benefit others and the world around us. The promise and assurance that death is not the end, but we have the gift of eternal life. In Jesus, we found a foundation of joy and peace, which he deposits within us. 
In Ephesians 3, it says, Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and will keep you strong. And this sustains us and empowers us so that when we experience the ups and downs of life, the things that make us happy when things are going well and times of sadness or pain and challenge, through both of these, we have an underlying and unshakable peace as our roots go into Jesus and through his power, he makes us strong. Through his, his power, he resources us with an inner joy and a peace in every season. And it's something that can't be found elsewhere. Just like Jesus said, I am leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. And so it's important for us, like Sarah was saying last week, and like we see with the wise men, that we live with Jesus as a foundation of our lives, that we see everything as a journey with him and for him and through him, in him, through him, for him, with him, every day. Rather, on the other hand, living our own lives and then with Jesus on the side, which we dip in and out of, from time to time, or when we remember, or once a week, or whatever, because if we do that, we just sell ourselves short. We sell ourselves short, and all that Jesus has for us. And so for us, let's be a people, and as we go into this new year, let's be a people who pursue Jesus, and experience the joy of that, like the wise men did. When they arrived at that small, scrappy house on the side of a hill in Bethlehem, you know, there was no feast, there was no reward, there was no treasure or blessing from a powerful king. It was just a poor family, but they were filled with joy. Why? Because Jesus was there. And this is a, a gift of God from heaven that we can't find anywhere else. So let's enjoy it. But we don't have to travel. We don't have to cross mountains and oceans and pack a camel because Jesus is with us. Let's not be like the religious leaders who had this amazing promise of God on their doorstep and just chose to get on with their lives over here and missed out on all that was happening and who was living two hours down the road. So this year, we're one week into January. Let's be encouraged as we go forward to find the time in our daily lives to be connecting with Jesus, to enjoy our friendship with him, the joy to be found in his presence through moments of prayer and worship, to thank Jesus for who he is and what he's done for us, to bring our needs to him, to ask him to empower us by the Holy Spirit for what's ahead of us each day, to lead us in his purpose for our lives, the things that he has for us. That, you know, when we go to work on a Monday morning, it's not just our to-do list that we know we've got to get through, but what, Jesus, is there anything you see in my day-to-day -day that you want to bring forward or that you want me to speak to or that you, you know, can use me and, and benefit others and bring your love to others? You know, sometimes when you haven't caught up with a friend for a while, maybe you haven't actually seen them, or maybe, you know, you see them in passing, but, you know, it's just time for small talk, and you haven't really read really a good catch-up, and you say to each other, you know, we should have a proper catch-up. Let's, let's put a day, time in the diary, you know, we'll catch up over the phone, or FaceTime, or we'll meet up, and you have a good catch-up. Maybe you feel like you need to reconnect with Jesus in a similar way, like catching up with a friend. And if that's so, let me encourage you. This um, passage that we've been looking at today is right at the start of Matthew's gospel, Matthew's account of Jesus' life, which is the first book 
of the New Testament. So why not, if you're not already, think, let, let me carry on the story. And throughout the month of January, we've done part one together. Carry on the story yourself. Read a little bit every day, the first book of the New Testament. And as you do, take a moment to pray. Ask Jesus to be with you. Ask him to speak to you. And you will find as you read through the pages of Jesus' life, the person of Jesus, his relationship will come alive to you in your experience. If you're someone who likes a visual aid to kind of help you imagine you know, what would this actually look like? What did it feel like? What was it like for people back then? Then there's a really good series that you may have seen or heard us talk about or seen us pinch photos from in the slides called The Chosen. It's a series about Jesus' life. I think they're on season three now. You can get it. They have like an app called, the, if you just search for The Chosen on your TV or on your phone or whatever, it's a free app and it's all free to watch. But it's also, I think, the first couple of seasons now you can get on Netflix and Amazon as well, uh, if that's easier for you. But I think to have the three seasons, you've got to have the app. Um, and uh, it takes a few episodes, like any series, it takes a few episodes to get going. So, you know, the first three, uh, you know, so-so, but then after that, it's really good. And, uh, but it looks at Jesus' life, and, you know, it's, it's, a create, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's got some creative license in terms of, like, there's backstories of the disciples and things like that. But if you'd like a visual aid to like go along with reading the Bible, to help you imagine it, to help you feel it, to help you kind of put it in 3D, as then when you go back to the Bible, you can kind of picture what it would look like, this is really, really helpful, and you might enjoy it. So that's a little shout-out for you there. Okay. Lastly, then, the wise men. Their story comes to an end at this point, as far as we see it. And they finally return home. It says this, When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. However, as we know, Herod himself isn't finished yet. And if you want to find out what happens next, if you can't remember or you don't know, then I'll encourage you to go and read it at home for yourselves and uh, start from there. But for us, why don't I pray? Father, I thank you for the way that you have pursued after us in our lives through Jesus. I thank you for the all that you've given to us and invited into relationship and friendship with you and that you live within us today. And I just pray right now for anyone in the room or watching at home, in fact, for all of us, and I ask, Holy Spirit, would you come again by your power and to fill us with the peace that we find in Jesus, the gift that comes from him that we can't find anywhere else. I pray, Holy Spirit, would you come now, fill us with your peace, strengthen us in your power for the things that we have in our days and the things that you want to do through us. Empower us, Lord. I thank you that you are with us every moment. I thank you that you have a purpose for our lives. I thank you that we do it together and together with you. And so come now, Holy Spirit, we invite you in the name of Jesus. Amen.